join us as we take a look behind the scenes with the independent musicians of Louisiana. Learn about upcoming projects before they drop. Experience the rich heritage of iconic venues and get first-hand accounts of exclusive events. Musicians are remarkable people. Get to know them, their struggles, and the inspiration for their art. NewOrleansMusicians.com is dedicated to uplifting the artists and providing them with the tools necessary to elevate their craft. We shine a spotlight on them, as well as highlight the music scene and educate everyone with our interviews, album reviews, and music scene news. This is NewOrleansMusicians.com. Yeah, uh, my name's Steve Mignano. Um, I play guitar and I sing. Uh, my current project's working with uh, Garguts and uh, also Drab. And uh, I play some other gigs as well, sort of as a hired gun playing guitar. Okay. And um, so we're in Algiers now. Where yeah. did you grow up? I grew up uh, outside of Toledo, Ohio, actually, uh, okay. way up north. And uh, music's always been kind of a part of my life because my dad uh, played in bands when I was a kid. And um, he owned a little guitar store in Blissfield, Michigan. Mm -hmm. when I was real little and like my earliest memories are kind of like crawling around on the floor of his guitar store uh, hearing him and his friends talk about guitar play guitar so it's kind of like I feel like it's my first language in a way sure like my literally earliest memories are seeing guitar hearing guitar so yeah it kind of came naturally later on yeah um, what kind of music was he into um, he was into all different kinds of stuff, which was cool because we had a, an awesome record collection at home. You know, everything from like country to jazz to a lot of rock and blues and that kind of thing. A lot of roots music. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he was a very good guitar player too. So. Yeah. So you were hearing music 24-7 pretty much. 24-7, yeah. yeah. When I was a little kid, my dad had a, he liked to hunt, so he had a, a van but it didn't have seats in the back or nothing it was for his camping and hunting gear and stuff but he had two home stereo speakers two captain's chairs and the beanbag chair was mine so i would sit between the two home stereo speakers and he had figured out a way to put a radio shack amp in the in the dash you know so he could crank it up so like you know nice doobie brothers and james taylor and and yeah. uh zeppelin who knows who else you know yeah it sounds um, like some good father-son time for sure yeah right <laughs> Less words, more rock. And, but uh, so it was. It was always around me too, at home and traveling and things like that. You know, um, did he kind of encourage or steer you in any way towards any of the things that he was doing, like typical fathers do? You know, uh, uh, we were very encouraged, but it was never in like an unnatural or forced way at mm -hmm. all. It was more like if we took an interest in it. You know, my parents were very, uh, very encouraging of it. I would of imagine course. it didn't take you very long to, to start into that. No, it was just all available. It was all there. So I think um, I think what really lit the fire, and I've heard this from a lot of guitar players that are around my age, is like when you saw Back to the Future the first time, Michael J. Fox plays Johnny Be Good at the end. Yeah. Which is still like, you know, it's like one of the coolest scenes in any movie ever. Yeah. But uh, me, I think when I was seven or eight years old and I saw that, I'm like, you know, that was it. I had to play guitar. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny though, because uh, you bring up another aspect of it. Um, when you're hearing it at home, let's say on the radio, or your dad's playing it some, maybe it makes it more approachable. But the the rock star status that kind of comes with it, uh, yeah, 
you didn't see it sensationalized until you were looking at it in the movie, so it became something else. When you see it in that context, it's like superhero shit. Right. It's like larger than life. Yeah, know? that's yeah. funny. Because there are a lot of people, like you, like you pointed out, um, coming up that are now musicians, somebody in their family played, they got exposed at an early age and things of that nature. But to many people, um, they just hear it on the radio or they see it on TV and they don't, they don't assimilate or equate uh, these people playing music with something that they could, it's not as, as easily approached or visualized when you don't see maybe one of your peers or parents or somebody playing some sort of instrument, you know what I'm saying? You had totally. access to it at yeah. an early age, so it just kind of felt natural. How, how early on did you start playing? I think I first picked it up. I asked my dad for lessons when I was about seven, and uh, and he got me started on learning Johnny Be Good. Nice. And I think I learned part of the intro, but at that point, it was just a little bit too hard for me physically to mm. play well. Yeah. And uh, and also, you know, I I was seven. I had ADHD, and I was running all over and playing sports and everything. So yeah. Um, I kind of it, put it on the shelf, and I came back to it when I, when I was maybe eleven or twelve, and got really serious about it. Yeah, and uh, then by the time I was fifteen or sixteen, I was practicing a lot per day, you know? mm -hmm. and um, I guess partly because my dad, you know, kind of coaching me along. You know, back then we didn't have internet or YouTube, so sure. you couldn't really like. Now it's kind of awesome because you can look up a YouTube tutorial, or whatever you want to learn, and you know it's like right there. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess partly because of my dad and some other really good guitar players in town, I had like um, some accelerated learning as far as guitar. Yeah. Yeah. And the uh, the Johnny B. Good and Michael J. Fox stuff that was around seven years old too, probably yeah yeah, yeah six or seven something like that yeah. yeah. But I would imagine it's something that you never forgot because you were connecting two worlds right then and there. I mean, oh. it's not as significant for a seven year old. He's like, whoa, but. You know, looking back, it seems like two things kind of converging for a moment. You know? Yeah, after I saw that, I used to run around the house like air guitaring, <laughs> you know, right, like right. Yeah, really yeah, getting yeah. into it. And then, you yeah. know, then I picked up the guitar and started to learn. I'm like, okay, this is really hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's not as not as easy as he makes it look in the movies. So. Bet. Bet. Yeah. Um, were you seeing any live shows like by the time you were early teen? Uh, some, uh, mostly my dad was in a bunch of different local bands and you know, we'd go see that and stuff. And then, so that was our preteen then? Yeah, 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 exactly. And then when I got, I think when I was like 11 or 12, I started going to a couple concerts. I saw Soundgarden, I saw, I think I saw Megadeth and I saw uh, the big one, I saw Rage Against the Machine when I was like 16 at mm -hmm. the Palace of Auburn Hills in mm -hmm. Detroit. And something about the energy of that show was like really intense. Yeah, you, know? you picked but, up um, on that. Huh? Yeah, basically where I grew up, uh, we had like three radio stations. You know, again, this was like pre-internet, so you know access was sort of limited to whatever Absolutely. was available. Yeah. So we had the classic rock station 104.7. You had uh, Buzz 106.5, which was like the modern rock alternative station. Mm -hmm. And then like the pop station, which is 92.5 or whatever, where they'd be playing like Mariah Carey and stuff like that. Yeah. And so I'd bounce between the classic rock station and the modern rock station. And that in, you know, my formative years of, of getting into music and really getting serious about guitar, that, you know, that's where my influences came from. Yeah, you know? sure. So it'd be Zeppelin, ACDC, Sabbath. Etc. You know, and then the modern stuff too. Soundgarden, I was really into Metallica. Yeah. You know, Alice in Chains, bands like that. And so when I started really sitting down and learning guitar, uh, that's what I wanted to learn. Yeah. 
Yeah. The uh, album collection at the house, was that pretty much some of the same, the, the classic rock, like the Zeppelins and things of like that? Or did they have folk music in there too? Because your dad was kind of into that stuff? All kinds, man. I still have some of my parents' records. And nice. I remember when I first started, when I first latched on the blues, when I was like in my, my teen years, you know, the records were sort of like alphabetical. And uh, I remember I saw there's B.B. King live at Cook County Jail right next to Roy Buchanan, a Coke okay. of Roy Buchanan compilation. Yeah. And I remember listening to those two albums back to back, and that's what set me off on this like blues binge. Okay. Um, and uh, Roy Buchanan in particular, there's something about uh, on that album, you know, The Messiah Will Come Again and Sweet Dreams, which are like these guitar ballads that were just like haunting. And I remember that record was slightly warped. Uh -huh. So it had like this warble to it, <laughs> which made it even creepier a little, or like <laughs> right. even more haunting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm just fortunate that I had all of that, that buffet of music to, to get into, to yeah. dig into. And yeah. I was, and it, it never seemed weird to me to be into, into that and also into fucking Megadeth, you know, like there yeah. wasn't that much of a disconnect for me, you know, if it had cool guitar riffs, I was there. Yeah. That's that's funny. I could see how you would appreciate variety because of your father, but um, it's something totally different to incorporate Megadeth into that pool. <laughs> you yeah, know what I'm saying? yeah, totally. Yeah, um, I think the first back then again, we, like we had tab books, you know. Yeah. Like, and uh, what was funny is if somebody saved up like 15 bucks and bought a tab book. It would become like public property among your friends. Sure. Like you'd pass it around, and then you know, like months later, you'd get it back from a friend that you didn't give it to. You yeah. Know? <laughs> and the pages would be wrinkled or whatever. Um, but I think the first two tab books that I bought uh, were Nirvana in Utero and Countdown to Extinction. Megadeth. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I learned all the Nirvana stuff, but I'm still struggling with uh, Marty Friedman solos on Megadeth. So <laughs> yeah, I bet. That's I very bet. top shelf guitar playing. Yeah. That, so. Did you um, did you kind of run any of this by your father since he was like the genesis for your your musical pilgrimage, if you will, like coming back saying, "Dad, have you heard of Megadeth?" Or, or did you not think he would be into that sort of thing? I mean, it's a bit extreme. He wasn't listening um, to extreme forms of music. No, no, he he. I think he got it. Like some of it, he liked, and maybe didn't let on that he liked it because mm -hmm. he didn't you know he's trying to be a dad you know right that's funny <laughs> but uh um he, he never like tried to steer me away from it and he's like yeah if that's what you're into and i think he could he could appreciate it from a musical standpoint like if i mean if he hears a really fucking kick-ass metal guitar solo he's gonna be like you know that's some good plan yeah so uh even if he i mean he would be very blunt about what he liked and what he didn't like. Sure. You know, but, uh, you know, never tried to discourage it. So, right. Not to refute anyone else's taste, I suppose. Yeah. So, uh, what started you off, uh, performance wise playing in public? I think the first time I played guitar in public in like a band setting was, um, when I was in high school, I think my sophomore year of high school, uh, the drum line that year was doing a dream theater show. Mm -hmm. They did change the seasons, by Dream Theater. And uh, yeah, they needed a guitar player in the pit because you know you can't really do a Dream Theater without guitar. It's right. guitar heavy music. Yeah. And obviously the, the, the production of the show was all about percussion and drums and stuff. But mm -hmm. um, you know, and I the the town I grew up in in rural Ohio, 
just to put it this way, uh, my graduating class was 48 people. Okay. So we're talking about a tiny rural town. Sure. And I'm like the only kid who played guitar. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I jumped at the chance to do it. They asked me to do it and I jumped at the chance to it and learned, uh, you know, learned this dream theater set, which if I remember correctly, you know, I think he was using a seven string guitar on that. So I had to tune my low E down to a low B uh-huh. and you know, it was, it was challenging. Yeah. you know for me at that age but super fun and uh um that was a cool first first time out because you know i got to play for a decent size audience because we'd play you know the drum line to have to go to competitions and stuff and play in front of okay pretty big audiences but i'd also get to kind of crank up the amp and like use a lot of you know palm muting and chugs and distortion yeah you know it wasn't like a lame um, I'm playing in the right. school band kind of gig. It was yeah. Dream Theater. It was pretty cool. So uh, that was exciting. You sure. Know? Like I got to hear, I got to see the impact of loud guitar <laughs> sure. on my peers. Yeah. You know, and, and all the high-fiving and stuff after. So There was no trepidation uh, on your part at any moment? Did you? I mean, oh, did I was you... scared shitless like the first <laughs> okay. couple times. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, um, once you kind of jump into the deep end, you know, and this is something I feel like I've learned about life from playing music. It's like when you're sta- standing in front of an abyss and like there's nowhere to go, you know, jump, you know. And once you do it, you, you begin to realize, oh, that's not so bad. Yeah. You know, it's not going to kill you. Yeah. So uh, it gives you courage. It gives you, you know, more confidence. And then you come back and look at it and you can examine, you know, I could do this better. Sure. Uh, this was awesome. You know, that was my favorite part. And it's, it's the most, playing music is the most exhilarating thing in the world, man. And um, it starts with a spark. But, you know, if you nurture that spark, it grows into a fire. And as I've gotten older, it's, it hasn't diminished at all, man. It's, it's just gotten more complex. It's like turning into this lotus flower of fire now. Sure. That, that one little spark. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since uh, Dream Theater and, and uh, the school band, um, you said that was your first time performing live, so I'm assuming you weren't in any kind of band of your own before then. Um, I had like a, well, actually, yeah, I, we had like a garage band. Me and my buddies had like a garage band when I was in like eighth grade. Okay. And um, we, we used to practice in my buddy Evan's, his grandma's garage, you know, and it was your typical garage band type of thing. We were playing a lot of covers, you know. Sure. Um, Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana. We were really into punk rock too at that time. So we were playing like Black Flag and you know stuff like that. And uh, I remember for his birthday one year, his mom booked us some studio time, which we thought was like the most amazing thing yeah. ever. And yeah. uh, we we cut like a two song demo, you know? Sweet. Yeah, so cool. And then for that summer, we were like the rock stars of the town. But we didn't play any shows because, you know, we didn't have a drummer. <laughs> sure. So the dude at the studio, the recording engineer, played drums on the demo for us. You gotcha. Know? And, uh, but, so I, I didn't really have live performance experience until later oh, on. I gotcha. But, I gotcha. Yeah. The, the small town was at a bit of a handicap when it came to recruiting friends to be oh, able big to time. Yeah, big time. make a band. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Especially because my friend group by high school, um, they all, most of them went to a vocational school. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I got pretty decent grades and I was a little more academically inclined. And so my parents wanted me to go to like a private school. I didn't want to go to the private school. Yeah. So I wound up kind of stuck back at public school without my group of friends. Gotcha. And um, which 
it wasn't all bad because I, I did become a little bit withdrawn, but I also got more into music as a result because mm-hmm. I didn't have as many distractions and, you know, like no, I didn't, none of the other kids at school were cool. So <laughs> I didn't think so. I just, you know, started getting into old movies, getting into more records, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Did, uh, since you had those albums at home, cause see, I had a similar experience, but my parents divorced when I was like nine, but you know, I eventually inherited that record collection. Yeah. You know, stack like this. And now I've got a stack from here to that wall, two shelves, three shelves. Like it just kept going with me. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I felt like, and I mean, it's a common theme with me to, to kind of hold on to the past in some respects because I have more esteem for the way they did things, especially when you speak on music because uh, I mean, let's face it, a digital download is soulless compared to an album where you're looking at the, the inside of it and you could smell it, dude. You could see it. It was there when it happened. You know what I'm saying? And totally. It's, it's, a, it's an entity. It's a life unto itself. But so um, did, it, did it cause you to, uh, I, I guess, did it instill any more respect in you uh, for old mu- older music or, um, you know, older... Uh, views on on how to make that music because I mean the the recording the technology and all of that stuff over the year changed as well And you got to see a little bit of it to, to, to cut that demo, you know, totally but since then I mean so on the records is, is one style of, of recording and sound and then your demo is another style of recording and sound and like you're, you're getting kind of like this lazy Susan full of things and, and you know band at school did it did it instill in you any sort of I guess, uh, respect or recognition for these different atmospheres in which music was created. Absolutely. Um, like I'd say, um, when I interact with, with musicians that are younger than me, because I'm kind of in like this cusp age group, Mm -hmm. you know, um, well, somewhere between millennial and gen X, like I can still remember the world pre-internet and like, um, my formative years began in that time period still. Sure. And so um, it, it makes a huge difference how music is recorded in the analog era versus the digital era. Absolutely. And um, it, it, in my, for me anyway, really went downhill when it, everything started going digital. Yeah. You know, there was um, just much less good music and the sonic quality of it to me was not as good. Sure. And um, that was one of the things I really insisted on, on with the Drab album, and one of the reasons why I appreciate Jack Mealy so much as a producer is uh, that was the sonic quality I was trying to capture, you know. And it's hard to do now because you know a lot of those those records were you know they were recorded to analog tape, yeah, which is like it, in most situations just not possible anymore. Yeah, but if you have the right people involved and and they know how it should sound and what to do mm-hmm. and they know the right techniques as far as miking and stuff like that you can still get that that warm ambient sound where you can almost feel the room that the recording's made in i got you okay yeah. uh what was the name of that album for these guys uh the drab album yeah uh it's our self-titled album that we released uh about a year and a half ago okay yeah it's just called drab okay um and that's interesting too i didn't expect such a uh uh, well-rounded response to that because I know I was kind of going off in different directions but I was trying to capture the essence of kind of the old versus the new or being able to recognize and perhaps 
duplicate or, or, you know, emulate that in your work, you know? And like you're saying, it takes a lot to, to try and emulate something that you have a, a passion for that comes from an era where it was all that they knew, you know? Yeah. I have a, a great deal of respect for that. I, um, I interviewed a band, Pocket Chocolate, and they, they've got a ton of members, like nine. They have a brass section and all this stuff. But So one of the guys in there um, had a real affinity for uh, the recording style where they would all get together in the same room at the same time. Nobody was isolated. Right. And they would all get together and record, and which is a challenge in itself for a nine-member band. But um, interesting for me to hear that coming from someone that, I mean, he's half my age. Right. <clears throat> and he's talking about his affection for albums that came out before his birth. Right. You know? But it, it's funny how deep musicians can go because they have this different lens on. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure since you played guitar, you recognize the guitar portions of albums and songs more so than others might have because you knew what went into it and you knew what to look for it. You know what I'm saying? Totally. So, um, you know, kudos for that. I uh, feel I feel lucky in a way that I'm, I'm still kind of anchored in that era. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I'm glad I got to experience just the tail end of it, if nothing else. You know? Sure. Well, pre-internet says enough. Yep. It says a lot. It's yep. like you, you weren't <laughs> safe from whatever virus that is. You totally. Yeah. That's funny. So um, moving forward, you, um, I don't want to jump to drab just yet because there's a big gap there. You, um, let's say after high school, uh, you got your first experience live while in high school. Yeah. Um, You had a garage band just before that. Between sophomore and senior in high school, uh, did the garage band kind of uh, grow or change or anything like that? No, unfortunately, I, did, I just couldn't f- find anybody to play with in my town, really. So yeah. I became uh, more focused on listening. And um, at that time, uh, you know, you're thinking about what you want to do after high school or you're thinking about, you know, trying to plan the rest of your life sure. as, if, as if you even have the means to do that at that age, you know. Right. You don't know what's going to happen. But uh I, I wanted to be a filmmaker at that time, so I was thinking about going to film school after after high school and stuff, And but was still really into music and playing guitar by myself. And then um, after I graduated high school, like literally the day after I graduated, I couldn't wait to get out of the town, so. That was gonna be my next yeah. question. I was assuming <laughs> that was always the plan, no matter what the plan was, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, the day after I graduated, I threw all my stuff in, in my car and moved to LA. Like fully Whoa. convinced, fully convinced that I was gonna, like gonna start the next fucking Zeppelin or something. Well, wait a minute, out. though. But you said uh, you were interested in film production, right? Yeah, um, I decided I kind of had these two spheres of of interest. Where I'm like, well, you know, I'd really like to do something with film, and I'd you know I'd have to commit to college to do that. Mm-hmm. But also, part of me still wanted to do music. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, I'm just going to go for it with music. And if that fails, then I'll do something else, maybe. Was you it know? ever um, on your mind about the intersection of the two worlds, like film scoring or anything totally. like that? Totally. Uh, uh, yeah, that's par- partly why I picked L.A. to go. As I figured, I'm like, well, I mean, the two things that I'm most into, you know, maybe there'll be some opportunity for either one out there. Sure. You know, and, you know, maybe I could start try to start a band and also, you know, try to work in the film industry in some respect you know yeah and uh i i 
went to, I did like a semester program at Musicians Institute. Okay. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount in a short amount of time there. Mm -hmm. uh, the instructors were really, really good. And that gave me like a, a good uh, infrastructure uh, as far as technique and theory and stuff to build on. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, you have big aspirations when you're 19 and then you kind of get your ego crushed by the world a little bit. And yeah. It was way too expensive to live out there and stuff. So sure. I got to do, it was a big adventure. I got to do some cool stuff, you know, had a couple bands that sort of came together that immediately fell apart. I kind of came back, uh, I wound up back in Ohio, kind of disappointed and stuff, started selling appliance parts. But uh, that was also not a bad period because um, it, it was, I worked in this sort of small appliance parts warehouse and I could just bring my guitar to work with me and practice all day. Mm -hmm. And so I just shedded for like three years, you know, just, you know, when I wasn't answering the phone or stocking parts or packaging stuff up, yeah. I would just be shedding, you know, uh, listening to records, transcribing solos, trying to learn new chords, the whole, you know, just the, the, uh, there's no substitute for just doing the work, the homework. Sure. You know, it's, it's, that's the boring aspect of being a musician, but uh, e even the most badass rock star, you know, even fucking Dimebag did that homework. I guarantee it. Yeah. Because you don't get to that level unless you really sit down and, and knuckle down and learn. Yeah. You know, and you that's where the hard learning came in. I'm know? sure. I'm sure. You had mentioned uh, pre-internet. Um, did you have resources for this type of homework that you're talking like, you know, were you picking up a regular magazine at the time or? Yeah, or um, guitar chord books. A lot. Of, my dad had a lot of that type of thing laying around. Ah, yeah, that's true. Um, I could also, you know, borrow some from other people. Or uh, a lot of it was chord books, theory books. Um, a lot of it was just like ear training and listening to solos and transcribing them and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in my early twenties, I I got more into jazz, but also was like put off by the jazz community a little bit, like okay. the sort of snobbery, the inherent snobbery of it and stuff. Sure. And, um, you know, and my natural playing style is sort of heavy handed, which didn't lend itself to that style. So okay. um, I, I never got very good at it. Yeah. And so I gravitated more towards rock and blues and heavier styles of music, so. What, what uh started the offshoot for jazz or the interest in jazz that wasn't anything mentioned throughout your childhood um i just listened to all kinds of stuff man yeah just i was just all trying over something the place. yeah if i heard something that resonated with me or or perked my ear up i would just go for it i get like one of my favorite bands of all time is is allman brothers okay and and obviously you know they've had so many guitar heavyweights in their lineup over the years and i think i went through a period of time where i was way into allman brothers and obviously, there's an avenue towards jazz in that music. Yeah. Because, you know, Dickie and Dwayne were really listening to, like, Kind of Blue, the Miles and Coltrane stuff to get their guitar interplay down. Yeah. And um, so I guess that was sort of like the, the, uh, the offshoot to jazz for me. And then I started listening to it a little bit more. And um, yeah. That makes sense. That yeah, makes yeah. Sense. Um, the, the, the blues and rock relationship has always been. Uh, I mean, they're inseparable. At some yeah. point or another, going back, you're gonna find one or the other through one or the other, you know? So, I mean, I, I could kind of see that. I think that probably what you're gonna find is that the weird thing about doing this interview is that um, 
I mean, for the better part of my adult life, I've played music full time. Mm-hmm. But I, I get, I mean, I don't reflect on it that much. But I guess my career path is just like totally oddball. It's all over the place. Yeah. You know, like everything I've done, everything from like neo soul to country. Yeah. You know, like before before Drab, the most recent thing I did was with Chapel Heart, which is like an up and coming country band. You know, they went from New Orleans to Nashville. Yeah. And they're doing really well. So. Yeah. Um, and then before that, I was touring with a neo soul artist named Cassie Taylor. Okay. Some years ago, so yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I've never really uh, sat down and had any kind of career path or strategy. It's like it was always like if, if I if it made me feel something, if it resonated with me, I just uh, went for it. Absolutely, yeah. So does um, in, in that being said, do you get the itch after a certain period of time? I remember, <laughs> I remember telling my wife my longest relationship before I met her. Right, coming up, you're like, uh, you know, we went together for a year. We were seeing each other for two years or something. I'm like two years, and that's it. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you get the itch after a while until you find what suits you better. I guess you know. Um, is has there been a certain period of time where you just start to maybe it's not a, a set number, but do you get that itch after a while? You know, say so you're doing neo soul for two or three years. Does it start to feel like it's time to venture off or it just kind of happens naturally? Um, I, I guess it just kind of happens naturally. I don't, I don't know. Like, it's a weird question. Um, I mean, you're just kind of following your emotion. Uh, I can't really explain that. Following you know? your muse. Yeah. You know, that, th- that thing that inspires you. And I guess that's like I was talking about that spark and that flame. That's how you keep it lit is absolutely you, you you have to follow that voice that's that's guiding you or inspiring you and uh for me i i never really thought about the consequences or what other people thought you yeah. know like i'm sure when i started doing drab or now more recently guard guts it may have alienated uh some of the people that were in that knew me because of my blue stuff sure but i uh, i just don't care <laughs> you right. know, like yeah uh, um so uh yeah uh, it's if you don't do that i feel like you stagnate or you start to become a parody yourself yeah or something yeah stagnation is death it's my favorite saying exactly (laughs) um the three years that you were not doing any of this the three years that you were at an appliance parts store what happened to the spark then i mean did you ache a little bit or did you feel like you kept it alive on your own or yeah um Again, it was like sort of the only way I could keep it alive was to just bring my guitar to work and shed. And I felt like it, it was kind of depressing because I felt like in a way, you know, like I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do music for a living. I thought I wasn't sure if that ship had sailed and it was just going to be a hobby and yeah. you know, I was going to have to find a job or go back to school or some bullshit I didn't want to do. Mm. Um, and so, uh, but I just kept practicing you know, kept working. Sure. And then eventually, um, one of my buddies mentioned to me that there was a pretty well-known blues harmonica player in, in, in Toledo named Johnny Reed. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a Chicago-style blues harp player. Okay. Um, like Paul Butterfield style. Okay. And um, because of my dad's record collection, I was a big fan of Paul Butterfield and Mike Bloomfield, his guitar player. Um, and I, or I heard that his... He was looking for, he was auditioning guitar players. And one of my buddies uh, 
who's actually he's a very good guitar player in Austin now. We've sort of had these parallel journeys, you know, okay. coming from Toledo. But to, he was like, dude, you should really audition because, you know, you know what he's going for. You know, you know the Butterfield stuff back to front. So, yeah, know, I think you should audition. And I was too nervous at that time. I was like, no, nah, you know, I don't, you know, I was just shy. Yeah. And uh, finally, you know, I just fucking nutted up and went and auditioned and he hired me on the spot. Oh, shit. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was amazing. Yeah. And um, then for the three years after that, <clears throat> uh, he kind of became my mentor, really took me under the wing. I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, talk about like underrated musicians I've worked for. That guy should have like a great career. You know, yeah. he's got great stage presence. He's a uh, blues harmonica virtuoso and uh, really taught me so much about the fundamentals of performing. Yeah, and uh, we they were like a regional touring band, and so you know I was kind of taking like night classes, and you know at the time just you know as a plan B in case whatever else didn't work out, mm-hmm. I dropped out of school. I figured you know this I can, is it. <laughs> yeah, this is it, man. Which, which I attribute. I, I I still say you know I don't want to give anybody the. I don't want to be a bad influence on anybody, but sure. to me, dropping out of school is like the best thing I ever did, yeah. the best decision I ever made. So <clears throat> I always figured, you know, I can I can always go back to school, but you can't go back in time and try to and join a band and try to play At music. At that moment, yeah. So um, that was it. Joined the band, played hundreds of shows a year from that point on, and uh, you know, I learned a tremendous amount. Got a lot of stage time in. Yeah. Um, so it went from the woodshed to the stage, and um, you know, that was just a great time, you know? Yeah. It's funny because up until, up until that point, you were heavy on theory, but not on anything else about a performing band and stage presence totally. and, and, and how you carry yourself on stage and, and feed off of the crowd or read the crowd. Read I mean, the there crowd. Is, there's a lot that goes into a show that's not even music. Totally. And you weren't really privy to that up until this point really right not at all i guess i had i I had a sense of it from watching other people but a total totally different story being being on stage in front in front of people yeah yeah um yeah um when you left uh la what what was the last straw like what was what did it um it was it was, I didn't have any like super bad experiences. It was more of like a money thing. You know, yeah. even back then it was a, it, way too expensive to live there. Couldn't really make ends meet. Um, and I couldn't really get anything together that I felt like was met my my ridiculously high 19 year old expectations, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, I just kind of like gave up, you know? It was more. It was more like I felt like I had failed or something. You know. Well, like, sure. I mean, I'm sure you arrived back home of all places, which doesn't help the ego with a, yeah, a, a, a deflated ego, you know. And and yeah. so the three years was like uh, an incubation time. But um, yeah, you were, like you ride off into battle, and then you're like, okay, maybe maybe <laughs> maybe I suck. Right. <laughs> Somebody stands you're suck. like, oh, yeah, exactly. wait a minute, yeah. I'm going home. Yeah. yeah. But that had to be that had to come alive tenfold when you got this gig. Yeah, t- uh, totally. It was like it was like instant. Everything that that preceded that moment, that moment was like the affirmation. Yeah. Of like, that was the validation of you, like all that work that came before it. All not the, only all the work, but what you suspected you were made of. Right. You know, because you went you yeah. went there with high hopes, and you kind of felt like nobody got you. But maybe you question yourself after that. You know, you're like, am I really good enough? 
I don't know, I don't know. And then this guy yeah. takes you on and then you end up being told, yeah, goddamn right you're good enough, you know? So it, it, it was, it was a, yeah, it was a huge moment yeah. to have uh, a really well-respected music and a musician in Toledo just instantly on, you know, we played like two songs at the audition and he's just like, you're the guy. Yeah. And I was like, I, could, I almost couldn't believe it. Where was he at in his career at that moment? He was from that area and just starting to form something? Um, he, he was really well known in that area and had come up playing with Art and Roman Griswold, who were kind of like Toledo blues legends. Okay. And um, uh, he, I, he had a family and stuff like that. And, you know, he was touring regionally. And, okay. Gotcha. You know, it's one of those things where I've, I've known so many extremely talented people that should be more successful than they are but it's like if it were easy then everybody would do it right you know if it, if it were easy to be a, a rock star then every single motherfucker on the planet would be a rock star <laughs> yeah. it's not like there's and it's one of the few industries in the world where there's just no rule book like i, I there's True. no there's no strategy you can apply that is going to give you an edge like yeah. it, it even less so now you know like where uh, you can just as easily get famous from a TikTok video of your cat as yeah. you can, like you can put out a great album and get nothing. Yeah. And then do something ridiculous on TikTok and get wildly famous. Yeah. So it, it makes even less sense now. Sure. Know? Yeah, you're right. It, it's, uh, yeah, you can't even put that into words because you'd feel, you would think the, the, the better the substance, the more the reward, but it's just not the case. Anymore. It's not the case. Yeah. yeah, it's not the case. I mean, uh, so some of the most talented musicians I, I've known, you know, were like local cats, man. Some yeah. of my biggest influences were people that I just jammed with or became friends with along the way. Yeah. You know, they're every bit as much of an influence on my playing as, as you know, the greats. Sure. You know, if not more so. But you know what? It goes back to what we were speaking about earlier, where the musician views these things through a different set of lenses than the audience and sometimes the audience fully expects that band on stage to be background for them talking to a friend. Right. And it, it could be somebody that is phenomenal or was a superstar or is and was everything. It, you can't, you can't put, place a value on it uh, in any kind of context, money, time, or, or uh, substance or any of these things, you know? I think that you as a musician were able to see these things or even feel them more so because you had an you had a deeper appreciation for music than some. For some yeah. people, music is, it's isn't shit. It's just something that's on the radio that they're not paying attention to. Right. For others, music is life. Totally. Do you know what I mean? So, but uh, I think you're fortunate in that respect because you were familiar with this guy. You were familiar with his influences and his catalog and things of that nature. Not only right were you familiar with his work, but you had put in a lot of work of your own and that kind of converged at that moment, you know? I think that's probably what he saw in me is that I knew where he was coming from. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I'm hoping that's what impressed him, I'm guessing, because, yeah. <laughs> you know, my chops weren't the best at that time. So. How long, how long um, did that last for you? Uh, that, I think I played with Johnny for like three, three and a half years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, national, uh, this was a, a national yeah, tour? Yeah, um, we toured around. We did some gigs in Canada, too. It was okay. sort of like this regional, you know, thing. We got to do some really cool, cool gigs in a blues context. 
Um, you know, we opened for like Detroit Women of the Blues and Larry McRae and a couple other really cool blues people. Yeah. Um, and uh, just a great time, you know. It was a great. Sure. It was a great band with really good musicianship, and I had to play up, especially to Johnny because I was sort of counterpoint to him. You know, he was like, he was like heavyweight. You know, he was intimidating. You know, he had great stage presence, awesome singer, awesome harp player, great showman. Yeah, you know, just a great all-around great entertainer, and um, the I'm bar this, was set, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I'm this kind of like a rookie, you know, coming into the fold, um, and I'm the guy on the other side from Johnny, yeah. and I've got to hold my weight. Yeah, and he um, he was really cool about coaching me along, but also you know putting me on the spot and making me rise to the occasion. Sure. And um, I guess there's that's. One thing I took away from that experience that I kind of learned about myself is that I work better under pressure. Like, okay. um, one, one thing I've, I've noticed, um, I, get, I guess that makes me different from some musicians that I've, I've noticed is that some people kind of get cold feet if they're under, under the gun. Mm -hmm. I get my best shit when I'm like, when the gauntlet is thrown and there's, I have nowhere to run. Yeah. That's when I get my best takes. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> no better environment to, to, to have that uh, that trait, I would think, because that was your first first thing. Yeah. And for and big at that. So, I mean, you had to have that characteristic to, to stay above water. You know? so, yeah, I would have washed out pretty quick. Yeah. Um, if I had many, I think many guitar <clears throat> players had <laughs> before me. I think it, that was one guitar slot in Toledo that I, I think every capable guitar player had come and come and gone in. Really? So I feel lucky that I got to, I, I got to play with those guys for like three, three and a half years for an yeah. extended period of time and matured a lot through that period. Yeah. Outside of um, his kind of coaching you, uh, what else did you learn? Because, like we established, a lot of this was uh, things you hadn't been considering before, I guess you would say. You, you were heavy on the theory, but the stage presence was something new to you, too, and, and the idea that that was a thing. Um, what were some of the things that he didn't coach you on that you picked up from that time, maybe on the road, or is there anything that strikes you? Um, <clears throat> yeah, there's, there's like the technical stuff of like suddenly... Uh, like finding yourself on a pretty large outdoor stage yeah. for example and the parameters of everything are suddenly different that 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 is nothing like playing in a club okay which is nothing like playing in your bedroom or playing at the appliance parts store after hours makes sense <laughs> you know nothing completely different everything changes yeah i mean like what you're playing is the same but you know, especially playing outdoors, it sounds way different than playing indoors. Okay. Um, that's the type of thing that you can only learn from experience. And I remember playing, I can't remember exactly what festival it was at, or, or, but I remember we were on a large outdoor stage, and I remember listening to Johnny soloing. And what occurred to me is that he wasn't just playing his harp. He was playing the whole stage. He was listening to the environment. He mm -hmm. was listening to um, how his tone was coming through the speakers, how it was resonating. Um, it, I remember being on stage with him and that occurring to me at one moment. It's what, like, what made it occur to you? Was he playing noticeably different from another time that y'all had played? Yeah. Um, he was taking, taking the environment 
and making it work. Like taking, he was a, making adjustments on the fly mm-hmm. to make sure his tone was cutting through. And it, it occurred to me is it's like, you can't, this isn't the type of thing where you can just sort of rinse and repeat. You know, you go in, set everything up, play it exactly like you did the night before. Sure. Especially if you're kind of touring or playing in different clubs from night to night, the parameters are constantly changing. Yeah. And if you kind of do what you do every single night, you're not going to get your best performance. And I remember that moment in particular, like you really got to listen. And um, he could almost make the stage resonate with his instrument. You know, he'd find the tone and the note and it's like you could feel the whole stage move almost. And that's something I've always aspired. I always keep that in mind is like, you got to listen. You you can't just be on autopilot up there fucking playing. You got, you've got to really listen to the whole mix yeah and and find your sonic space in the mix and yeah sounds like a revelation on mushrooms dude <laughs> yeah yeah totally it's like uh, it must have been like a zen moment where you're like i get it all <laughs> i get it yeah exactly or or at least it opened like this whole door up of like oh like yeah. this is this is the difference between like heavyweight yeah and bullshit we'll be right back after these messages hey what's up everybody Normally in the middle of podcasts, they give you a bunch of advertisements. But on the NewOrleansMusicians.com podcast, we like to shout out our members. Today I've got a band out of Gonzales, Louisiana by the name Branded for Exile. They're a heavy metal, groove metal band whose influences include Pantera, Exorda, COC, and Killswitch Engage, to name a few. When asked what single factor played the biggest role in their decision to pursue a career in music, guitarist Cody DeRuin said, Performing in front of people that are into your music is a drug like no other. I'm sure many of our musician listeners can relate to that. They're performing locally these days, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, Lafayette, Lake Charles, and Shreveport. And they just dropped an album, Born in the Flames, on the 28th of October. They're on Facebook and Instagram, as well as streaming by the name Branded for Exile. And you can hear them as well as reach out to them on our site. They're a new member on NewOrleansMusicians.com, and I'm thrilled to have them because this is some quality work. But listen, I'm going to play a track for you off of their new album, Born in the Flames. This one's called Numbered Days. Check it out. Countdown! Now back to our show. So how and do you implement that? Did you did you I mean I'm still trying, man. <laughs> like it's it's right, right. It's tricky. I guess it's something that's elusive, you know, like uh I think it's probably this way for every musician and it's one of the things that keeps you in the game or keeps you striving. It's like chasing the dragon, you know. Yeah. Like you'll you'll feel like you'll play a million shows and at every one you'll feel like there was a fleeting moment where you were catching air and that's what you were really fucking getting there yeah but it's a fleeting moment and then it's back to sort of like 
um, you know, walking a tightrope of like this could fall apart at any moment. You yeah. know, my monitor sounds weird or, you know, like the, the, the tempo is slightly dragging or whatever, you know. Uh, that's one of the exciting things about live music, even listening to it, is that it's always an imperfect situation. There's, sure. an, ele there's an element of chaos to it. Yeah. And um, that's what makes it exciting. You know, it's, it's never perfect. And so, the, to me, the best live performers are, are people that can cut through all that bullshit. I mean, you got like, especially if you're a touring band, it's going to be hit or miss with the sound guy, unless you're rich enough to bring your own sound guy. If you're making enough money to bring your own sound guy, then right. you're good. If, if not, you know, <clears throat> you, you, it's going to be hit or miss with the house sound. Like, how do you put on a good performance if you're not digging the mix on stage? Yeah. Well, the best performance, the best performers that I've gotten to work with or I've gotten to watch can rise above all that shit and deliver, you know? And that's something I always try to think about. Yeah. Like, you know, there's a million different things I could be, could be bitching about or could be setting us back at any given moment on stage. I'm like, at some point, you just got to be like, fuck all of that. You know, how do I how do I get, how do I cut through? I mean, it sounds like it dwells heavily or relies heavily on focused reflection. Like you have to think about what just happened, cut through that bullshit. Yeah. To the moments that where you knew something was better than the rest yeah. of the time or better than the rest of you, you know, and then figure out what makes, what are the working parts of that? Like, what makes that, you know? Why? Why was it like that? Why know? was it like that, yeah. yeah. And then over <clears throat> years of, you know, experience, and you, you begin to maybe get, kind of get an understanding, but it's still fleeting, you know? Sure. <laughs> like, well, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, I mean, maybe you feel it at that moment, maybe you don't. Maybe right. you feel it afterwards. You Maybe you feel it after you realize, yeah. you know, yeah, that was the high point of the set. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, man. So how did that all come to a close? Was that a predetermined tour uh, uh, duration? No, I felt like um, I felt like I'd kind of gotten everything that I could have gotten out of the experience. Um, and then my sister, my older sister at the time lived in Denver and uh I think her and her boyfriend had split up and she had a free room in her house and she said, you know, like I could, I need help paying the rent. So you want to move up here and check it out? And I'm like, I felt like I was ready for something different. Yeah. And, uh, I'd never been to Denver, thought I'd go check it out. So that was like, I split with the band, moved to Denver. Like that was sort of opened up a whole new chapter of playing music, uh, up there and met a bunch of really cool musicians from there that were big influences on me too. Yeah. Yeah. That was an abyss to jump into because you didn't know what was on the other end of that, really. Totally. Yeah, I just I just knew it was time to to move on from Toledo in some respect. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And um, once you arrived out there, did you have any plan? Like, you know, what did you think was going to be um, in your life at that point? I just wanted to... I didn't have any big expectations. I just wanted to absorb some new music that's it sure. and i was just hungry for some for, play with some new people learn from some new people uh hear some new stuff and it was definitely a bigger pond yeah and so uh there was a lot of a lot of talent up there too and um i wound up i think that's when i started singing and i formed my own band 
Okay. Like I hadn't done that previously, you know? Okay. Um, and, uh, I was playing a lot of like blues rock type stuff there. Okay. And, uh, what, yeah. Around what year are we talking? This would have been like 2008 to, I think I moved to New Orleans in 2013. Okay. So from that time period. From 08 to 13. And you yeah. said three years prior was with, uh, touring with the band. Yeah. Um, Okay, just trying to get a general timeline. I'm willing to bet, though, when you moved to Colorado, your your aspirations were a little bit more humble than when you moved to L.A. <laughs> They're realistic. I, I had an I had an idea of um, what life is like as a real working musician. Sure. Without all like you know, the the glamour or the sort of ego based uh, fantasy world. You know, there's a lot of glitter on the outside. There's a lot of glitter on the outside and. I guess the I, I knew that I could do it. I'm like, yeah, I can make a living as a musician, or I can get some pretty cool gigs, you know. Sure. Um, you know, it's not going to be rock star shit, but I can, you know, get in a cool band, and you know, hopefully make a decent living doing it. You know, that 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 became the goal at that point. It's yeah, like, you didn't you didn't have to worry as much about, uh, I guess, a level of confidence. Right. Once you've proven to yourself that you can do this. Um, then you're like, okay, well, um, how do you set about, uh, you know, actually paying the bills doing it? Yeah. You know, um, and I guess I was fortunate enough to stay working. And I think I attribute that partly to just being open-minded enough and familiar enough with different styles of music that I could always find a gig. You know what were you doing when you first got there that you're talking about uh when i when i first moved there i, I had to have a day job to to get by and i worked at like a mountain bike shop like uh assembling and kind of repairing mountain bikes and okay. then i got uh, a gig in the i got a couple gigs in the blue scene mostly you know that's what's interesting about any city you you go to is if if you have a good background in blues and you know a lot of blues standards, you can throw together a combo. You can throw together a little trio, play in any bar in the city, make 150 bucks a guy. You know, yeah. you can pretty much do that anywhere uh, if you're if you have enough background in that style of music. Yeah. And so I started doing that, and then um, one thing led to another. I did some other odd gigs too. I played at some, uh, played a couple Celtic festivals with a, a Native American violinist named Arvel Bird, who's really unique and talented and really wonderful, nice guy too. Um, so it was just kind of, you know, I was just taking whatever I could, living hand to mouth to try to try to make a living as a musician. And uh, eventually, uh, <clears throat> eventually got a gig playing with a girl named Cassie Taylor, who's the, the daughter of Otis Taylor, who's a pretty well-known blues musician. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think from 2000, 10 to 2012 or 2013 i toured with her we toured in europe toured all over the states all over canada playing nice. like neo soul type stuff yeah um so just uh tumbleweed uh picking up different styles of music different gigs um always fortunate enough to to be working you know? sure were how would you put this were your studies in theory either on your own or, or uh, in school, like uh, in L.A. or something, were your studies in theory um, of the same variety as your taste in music? In other words, 
you had always been up front from the beginning of this talking about how your father liked many different styles of music so it was it was on to you that you liked many different styles of music and added a few of your own affinities along the way like uh, you know heavy metal and things of that nature in the books what were you looking at in the books um did it did it allow you to be able to play just anything because at this point and we've covered a lot of territory but at this point you're playing anything yeah um i think the the advantage to to knowing theory is it's kind of like learning another language mm -hmm. and then it makes it easier to communicate with other musicians about what to play and how to play it yeah i guess in a real world situation i mean there's a lot about there's a lot about theory that in a working musician's life is like completely fucking useless well yeah you, know? you mentioned <laughs> like, jazz you know? and everybody points out like none of those guys who started that knew how to play anything i mean read anything right yeah. exactly there's very very <clears throat> little of it in a real working situation that you're going to actually apply mm -hmm. but um uh, it, it is it it's very very useful if you know you know if you're very familiar with chord changes um and how you know the harmony and the melody relate and different kinds of drum grooves and that kind of thing um it's it's mu it becomes much easier to pick things up almost by osmosis gotcha. because you, you're not fighting with what you're hearing versus what the technical technically how to play it you it know, translates you, better i guess totally yeah you, you you have a sense of like you're hearing you hear it first um and you you have the tools that you need to play to play mm -hmm. it then um the the books the books that you were uh into uh from your father's shop or elsewhere um were they in any genre or vein or was it just the rudiments um mostly rudiments i remember there um there's a book by pat martino the jazz guitar player where uh, he shows a lot of chord inversions and stuff mm -hmm. and a lot of the chord voicings that i would use i would i borrowed heavily from that um, there's something called uh, fretboard logic or the caged system uh -huh. that I learned that and that gave me a lot of accelerated learning. I know this is getting super like wonky and technical about it's guitar. Cool. All, all different types listen to this, um, you know. Yeah, totally. But um, once I learned, uh, once I learned those patterns, you know, it became easier to learn scales and chord voicings all over the neck. And then, you know, that just sort of opens up the possibilities of what you can play. Yeah. And then the rest of it is just... Uh, I guess applied knowledge of like there's practice and then there's performance sure and you know the more people that you're performing with or the more situations you're putting yourself in and where you can apply the things you've been practicing then you're like okay this works this doesn't yeah. you know this is how I get around this <laughs> you know like I think uh, every working musician has like a, a, a bag of tricks or a toolbox sure they can, you know just like you know a painter is going to have their toolkit too. Yeah, you know they'll use this brush for this thing or you know sure. whatever. So yeah, heavily because uh, it'll bleed through so much to where people can pick out who. I think that guy is such and such on guitar. Let me go see, and then it because you have your own style at that point, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. Now, like obviously, from in this period of my life, I didn't really have like any aspiration outside of just being a hired gun and being able to pay my rent. Yeah. And so that's what I was doing was like you know just gunslinger shit you know somebody needed a, gu a guitar player and i fit the bill i'd jump on the gig you know some bands i played with for an extended period of time sometimes it was like one-off type stuff yeah but you know um it's partly what led me to new orleans because there's uh if you're that type of musician there's a plethora of gigs to play 
Sure. You know, um, some of the best musicians I know in town are, are kind of hired guns like that. You know, how did that um, different from how did that differ from uh, what you were looking to do or what you thought you wanted to do when you had moved out to L.A.? You had a different idea then, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost like I went hard in the other direction of like from uh, uh, sort of adolescent rock star fantasy to hardworking real world musician. Yeah. Like, how do I how do I actually make a living doing this shit? You know. Yeah. And then eventually finding a happy medium between the two, where you know I could pay the bills and also you know play more creative stuff and express myself more and like play my original music and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, um, we had spoke earlier about kind of uh, a focused reflection. When you look back on yourself at that time and age moving to LA, can you, can you see why certain things didn't work and how much of that do you attribute to yourself and how much do you attribute to your surroundings at the time? Yeah, it's funny because in a way, I feel like I haven't, I like secretly haven't actually given up. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like, I'm 39 now, and I'm still like, somewhere in me is still that 19 year old kid who wants to take over the world. Absolutely, so, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Um, for but the, uh, for the for the parts that didn't work, though, I guess when you look back on that time, can you see? Yeah. Oh yeah. In yourself. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. There was a lot that needed adjusting. Yeah. That's funny, man. You're um so twice twice you get uh a gig with uh a a fairly well known touring band. Um how much time are you given in those two instances to prepare? Because they were already they were already in progress when you came on, correct? They, they yeah. existed before you. It wasn't something that was about to happen. It was already happening. Uh, that's, that's an interesting question because I remember when I auditioned for Cassie, uh, she, she was, played bass and piano and sang. Uh-huh. And um, the day before the audition, she sent me uh, an EP with like four or five songs on it, but there were no guitar parts on it. Ah. It was just her a drummer playing her playing bass a drummer and her singing yeah and so i had to sit down kind of the night before the audition and like i'm like i guess i'm gonna have to come up with guitar parts for these songs you know yeah and i did my best i did what i would do in this i did what i thought sounded good sure and um i i, I remember at the audition we just sat down acoustic and she liked some of it and other things she instructed me to do differently and that kind of started a working relationship that was was pretty copacetic, you know, for the next two years. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think, uh, again, what benefited me in that situation was just being semi-fluent in a lot of different styles of music. Yeah. So that I was like, I was sort of jumping from platform to platform without falling through the cracks. Yeah. Or, or being totally stumped. Yeah. By, by any... And, you know anything that was sort of like any curveballs that were thrown at me that must have been a good feeling though because you kind of so you came into that situation kind of personally vested so to speak because you got to put a bit of yourself into what you were about to do totally yeah that wasn't the case uh, i keep forgetting the harmonica to do his name i'm sorry oh johnny reed yeah johnny reed that wasn't the case because you said uh in that situation 
a lot of the guys in the area, a lot of guitar players in the area at one time or another had been in the in that slot. So yeah. that was kind of play this. They, this yeah. wasn't, right? Yeah, in that band, it was like um, people had already sort of put their stamp on it yeah. in, in some regard. And also uh, they were drawing drawing from a certain, a particular well of Chicago blues. Okay. So like I had a reference point for what to do. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I could say when I started playing with Cassie, not not so much. Like I had a, a I had an idea, but those things were discussed later on. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I had interviewed a, a singer at one point, and she had transitioned from a band that was kind of a toxic atmosphere, kind of controlling to where such to where you know if she said we need to drop it down. My, I can't go that high with it. They would tell her, no, 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 you know, shut the hell up. And so she transitions from that sort of atmosphere to a band that welcomes her input and welcomes her, uh, you know, call and response in in speaking after after practice or after a performance and things of that nature. And I remember kind of feeling with her while she was talking to me about it, how it was so much more comfortable and put her at ease so much more to be in an environment that welcomed her input and that's why i'd asked you about this second situation even though it was something totally different from chicago blues being neo soul but the very first question you were asked was you know what would you do in this situation which is kind of flips you on end you know yeah um i'm i mean you feel much less stifled sure or, or like bound yeah to to you know like uh, uh, you know, within a bandwidth, sure. But uh, like, there's also part of it that's scary because it's like, well, I don't want to do the wrong thing. You know, I don't want to go out on a limb and like totally do the wrong thing and get fired or something. You don't even know uh, what's wrong at that point. You don't even know what's what wrong is. Yeah, so you, like you could do something that you totally think is right that could completely, yeah, like, eh. yeah, <laughs> nope, yeah. So which sometimes happened, you know, yeah. but you know. Yeah, that's that's life as a musician too. You, know? yeah. <laughs> you can't win them all. That was uh, so. That experience was that two or three years? You said it's like two, two and a half years, I think. Yeah, two, two and a half years. Um, got got to do a lot of really fun stuff. You know, we got to tour. We toured Europe really heavily. Got to see some amazing sights, play on some amazing stages, okay. meet some really cool people. You know, yeah. it's magic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, how did that one come to an end? Uh, again, you know, the things sort of reached their peak and wane, and then um, uh, she she married uh, uh, the tour manager who was her fiance at the time, and they started a family, and then she kind of took uh, I think about an eight year hiatus after that. Oh wow! Um, I think she may have done some shows in 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 and around that period, but mm -hmm. you know, everybody sort of went their separate ways, did other things. I started focusing more on on. Uh, <clears throat> At, by then, I was living in New Orleans and um, wasn't playing an awful lot locally and because I was on the road so much that I didn't really have a chance to get to meet people or network here. Right, and establish like, relationships. Sort of start yeah. to set up shop. So um, after that dissipated, I, I focused more on that, and, you know, and I really wanted to do my own thing this time. I want to start my own band. Yeah. You know, start recording my own music, you know. In both instances, though, the environment somewhat um kind of urged you to move on though right i mean it yeah. wasn't 
it wasn't you weren't forced out you didn't fire get fired or quit it was always amicable things of that nature so i mean all that aside you were kind of i guess you'd say reading the writing on the wall like they say you know i mean things kind of reached an apex and then again you know if you stay in situations too long it starts you know the stagnation kicks in yeah um and you know i feel like every everything has a lifespan some bands you know they keep the fire lit for years and years and years and years and sure that's that's fucking awesome you know it's a it's really an amazing thing yeah you know uh or, or you know i often think about like bands like just throw out an example like pink floyd like for most bands to to produce something like dark side of the moon mm-hmm. to get even to, to even get a really great song is a huge accomplishment yeah. then to have a great album is like exponentially more impressive yeah. and then to have a whole catalog of amazing albums yeah. is almost like only only the most narrow percentile of musicians get to that place sure so like it, it, it just depends really you know yeah. it just depends but yeah i guess you know the, the trade winds blow and then you move in another direction sometimes yeah yeah why new orleans um i think what happened was i was getting kind of tired of denver um it, it was you know it's just it was just starting to look more and more like just a sprawling suburb to me um, which I still have. It's like my second home in a way, so I still have a special place in my heart for for it. But um, I went on vacation to New Orleans, and it was so radically different from anywhere else I'd ever been. Um, in in many ways, complete opposite to Denver. Denver's a mountain. This is a swamp. Sure. You know, <laughs> like, and this is anything but a sprawling suburb. So yeah. Um, and uh, especially growing up in rural Ohio, you know, and I'd always had like a fascination <clears throat> with New Orleans, especially because you know it's the root of all American music. The reputation. Yeah, and yeah. so you can't get into a bunch of different styles of music without the word New Orleans cropping up repeatedly. Sure. You know, like repeatedly, you'd hear about the influence of New Orleans on all the different music you're listening to, no matter what genre. Yeah. You know, it all kind of like eventually leads back to one place. Yeah. So, um, but I, I remember I went on vacation here, immediately loved it. And not too long after that, you know, just kind of moved on a whim. Yeah. Didn't really know anybody and uh, just set up shop. And again, I was, I was touring a lot at the time. So I didn't, I didn't get a chance to experience the music scene quite yet until like maybe 2013, 2014. Uh-huh. You know, um, I started networking with local musicians, started picking up different gigs, played a lot of different gigs. You know, I just kind of like, um, again, got into that mode of just absorbing whatever came at me. I'm like, I wanted to play with the brass bands and I wanted to play, you know, I heard some great R&B singers and I wanted to play with them. And, you know, um, and I feel fortunate enough that I got to like check a lot of those boxes. Absolutely. Indigenous music. Um what is that like in uh, Colorado, in Denver? Is there is there something that's native to Denver in the music department? Um, nothing like nothing like here, man. Yeah. Uh, but you know that's that's pretty much anywhere. I think what was what was really popular at the time in in Denver was, or that I was sort of adjacent to, was like the jam band type stuff. Okay. Which um, you know I've always been a huge Almond Brothers fan, so you know if uh, I can get into 15-minute guitar solos in that context for sure. I love it. Sure. So, um, but definitely nothing like the indigenous music here. Yeah. 
you know it, it's a different animal i lived in um north Glen. you know where that's at yeah okay for like three months <laughs> right. yeah i was like fresh out of high school and the girl i was seeing moved up there and i'm like you know what fucking i'm gonna move up there too so i go up there not knowing nothing and like the only thing i could say about it is that and I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but everything around me seems so incredibly manicured. Oh, yeah. Um, which can be, I guess, a plus in some respects, but in others it lacks character, if that totally. makes sense, you know? A lot of beige. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> whitewashed world, man. So, um, so moving here appealed to you aesthetically? I mean, musically, you knew you, you were open to the idea, but... Yeah. I mean, coming from such a cookie-cutter world, so to speak, up there, did it? Did this kind of reflect the environment that you wanted to see yourself in? Did you? Did it Hell seem yeah. of interest? Oh yeah, I loved everything about it. It's my favorite city in the world, man. Yeah, I, I love everything about it. Love the food, love the people, love the music, love the atmosphere, everything. Yeah, you know, I feel like um, it, it takes a particular kind of savage to live here, but I am that savage. I feel like it's in my DNA in a way. Yeah. Like, some of us belong here. Yeah. I feel like I belong here. So, yeah, I feel like when I'm too far away from here, I can I can see it, hear it, and smell it in every person, even if they just say hello. I just know that was a Yankee hello. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of oh, I don't know. <clears throat> My wife has tried to get us to to, to move to uh, Arizona, where she's from, and I'm like, I, I I would some part of me would die inside, man. And there's no other way that I could put it. And that sounds dramatic, but I'm not being dramatic. Yeah. You know, uh, it feels like um, when I leave now, it feels like uh, it's like the volume is turned down yeah. or it's like if you if you're watching a movie and you, you turn the color down, <laughs> it's, it's like until, until yeah. it's like yeah. sort of like dreary. Yeah. That's how I feel when I leave New Orleans. It's like the color gets turned down on everything. Yeah. And it's kind of like, OK, boring. <laughs> so, um. Well, then that makes me ask the question, do you feel like Garguts or Drab is a band that could have been started in, in Denver? Or would it just not be... Obviously, it wouldn't be the same animal. No. Would it, what, 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 what would they be if it wasn't Drab and Garguts in New Orleans? What would it be in Denver? Would it be Almond Brothers-Z? Or like, you know... Man, that's, that's a, a tough question. question. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like... Uh, I guess it's like saying what um, if and who knows that what answer. if and who yeah. knows yeah i could be a completely different person if i hadn't left so yeah um but i don't think you would have had i think you would have lacked the inspiration to totally yeah to start something as you have because for you moving has been an inspiration i feel like yeah yeah you're right yeah and i think especially with drab um a lot of that had to do with the the, the right people coming together Mm -hmm. Like like Jack Mealy, for example, <clears throat> sure. like he was he was instrumental to that album. Like his production skills were instrumental to like bringing this idea that I had to to life, making it happen. Yeah. So without him, I don't think Drab would exist, or at least it would be like a shadow of what I feel like it is or what it's becoming. Yeah. You know, Drab is still a pretty new band, so it's changed. You know, it's it's sort of metamorphosed already. In a yeah. really great way. You know, yeah. I feel like we're going somewhere. I just don't know where yet. Sure. So. But that's part of the appeal, I would imagine, right? Totally, yeah. Yeah. Could you could you give us a, a rundown of the roster, the, the current roster, who's who's in, who's playing what? 
Yeah, uh, Casey Fritas on bass, mm -hmm. um, and he also plays with uh, Adam Pierce, who's a really great singer from this area. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, Aaron Levy on drums, and uh, Jacob Fitzmorris on second guitar, and then myself. Okay. Um, the drab began as a trio, but uh, almost every song when we recorded it had a second guitar part, and so when I was sort of putting together the live band it made sense to have another guitar you know it sounded better it fills out the sound yeah and it, it enables me to like sort of offload some guitar duty so that i'm not doing this fucking juggling act of like singing playing sure switching pedal like you know yeah, yeah, yeah um it just makes sounds more balanced with two guitars for sure will i guess it's a kind of a i'm asking you to predict the future <laughs> but so knowing you and knowing your character um you lust sounds dramatic but you kind of have a lust for um something new what's next maybe it takes a year or two or three for that to manifest itself and enough in you for you to make that move but my question is this can we expect that from drab can we expect drab to change and kind of evolve its soundscape over time because people like you don't like to sit in the same place for too long you know Totally. Is that, is that something that interests you for its direction in the future, I guess I should say? Yeah, we're going into the studio again next month to record some new stuff, okay. which is, um, um, it's, it's quite a bit different than the first album. Good. Um, it's not like a total, uh, total stylistic change. You know, mm -hmm. We're not like making a leap of faith into something else. Uh, but the sound is definitely evolving. It's getting meaner, darker, heavier. Um, yeah. The... Uh, current album that's out now uh will it have the same people playing or did you add people in the span between the last album and what you're about to record um the 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 last single re we recorded blacklight um the the newest addition to the band from that point is is casey on bass okay so yeah the the next couple songs we record we'll have him on them Okay. And I feel like this lineup is, is what, it, it naturally took shape. Like, this is what Drab is supposed to sound like. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's excellent, man. Yeah. Um, a little bit about Garguts for everybody. Yeah. Um, uh, it, basically, Dylan Hammered from Green Gasoline, one night, we were just hanging out, talking guitar, and he approached me about, like, you know, you ever think about... Uh, doing some like sludge metal type shit some mm -hmm. real new orleans like sludge metal type stuff and i'm like god i'd love to um and um i'd kind of experimented with like more extreme vocal styles uh-huh and uh and it was something i wanted to to try you know i wanted to like take my voice and push it in every conceivable direction i could to really see where the limit is and um so i'm like totally let's do it we uh, we started jamming. It's Sterling Anderson on bass, John Kasticks from Green Gasoline on drums, and uh, almost immediately just started writing songs, like super organic um, and fun. You know, yeah. like Garguts rehearsals are we just joke around the whole time. Um, though somebody will come up with funny lyrics, and it, we'll just extrapolate a song from it on the spot. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I feel great not having to play guitar because. I mean, with Dylan around, it's not like I'm going to play anything better. So, like, with a guitar player that good in the room, I'll just toss the ball to them, let them play. 
Right, so you strictly vocals. That's strictly this. vocals, yeah. It's, which that, like that's another thing that's new is like the first time I've ever been at a band where I just sing. Yeah, you know, and uh, man, I I love it. I'm having a blast. What does? Because you said you had experimented with some uh, different vocal styles in the past. Like, what does that? What does that look like logistically? Like physically, what are you doing? Are you at home? rehearsing trying or did you try in the presence of a full band like what do you do to experiment with your own vocals i feel like i've, I've played guitar for like more than half of my life mm -hmm. but started singing much later and uh it takes it's just like learning another instrument where it takes years and years and years of molding it until you feel like sure. you've found your voice yeah that was, i was going to use um, that turn of phrase finding your own voice finding your own voice yeah, I get and that. Yeah. um i i guess uh when i first started singing in my own band it was more like blues r&b rootsy kind of music um and uh <laughs> i was mostly just yelling in that band too <laughs> And then I got better and better at yelling and screaming. Yeah. And, you know, like, I guess in, in drab, it's, it's more of a hard rock vocal style, okay. like classic rock to hard rock vocal style. Okay. Um, and uh, I still, I don't consider myself the most technically adept singer. Um, like, I'm trying to get better at it. It's still, it's, uh, again, something I'm constantly trying to improve. Um, but I think Garguts gave me the opportunity to, to unleash, like really unleash, you know, like uh, both in terms of expression and in terms of just trying to see where I can push my voice. Sure. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've always been a huge fan of metal. And if you asked me, like 10 years ago, would you ever see yourself fronting a metal band? I'd be like, oh, I'd love to, but I don't know if I can do it. You know, like I, I, I wasn't sure that I had the vocal capability to do it. Yeah, but that's funny because the, you're, I would say the mainstay of your experience or what taught you the biggest lessons up until this point have not been in that genre. Right. Or in that atmosphere at all. I, it, it's so odd. It's funny to say, <laughs> I know. Well, it's funny to say that that would that these experiences would give you the confidence to do that when they, I mean, they're kind of related, but not really, especially not in a vocal sense, you know? Yeah. Um, and I guess I, I think how this all started is I mentioned to Dylan kind of jokingly that um, like I, when I'm around the house, I like scream at the cats, like metal style. <laughs> I'm sure they love that. <laughs> uh, yeah. They're used to it by now. <laughs> they yeah. just look at me like, you know, it's, nice. that's, that's Steve, you know? So, um, and I think that's what triggered in him in his mind like well you want to try to start a band yeah and i'm like yeah let's do it let's fuck it let's just let's get in a room jam and see what comes of it you yeah know? and if it if it's not happening it's not happening whatever we're all still friends doesn't matter yeah so there's and like zero blueprint for zero blueprint and, and it yeah. clicked immediately yeah so just off to the races you know? sure and like like i said we had our first show at parasite last friday yeah and okay. uh i could tell i mean that was one of the most fun shows I've played in a long time. So, um, uh, really excited about the future of the Garguts for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The implementation of the business side of music, which is an abhorrent. Oh yes. Turn of phrase there. Um, what does that mean to you? 
Is there some, none? Do you not concern yourself with it? Is it something you hand off to somebody else? Or do you have kind of a framework in your mind? What needs to be done? Just kind of to keep up to par, I suppose? I, th- I guess if, if, you, if a person wants to be a working musician or is this something you want to do as a career, especially these days, um, you have to have a business sense. Absolutely. You, know, you, you, you totally have to, um, even if it's like pulling teeth and it's like not what you want to be doing as a musician and it's a completely different part of your brain than the creative okay. process of making music and playing music with people, yeah. um, you kind of have to, uh, you kind of have to learn a bit about it. And I guess for me, it's like I've learned what not to do <laughs> over time. I feel like I have a better sense of what not to do, yeah. which is at least half of it. Sure. You know, like I don't know if I, I, I feel like if I had better business sense, you know, maybe some bands I've been in in the past would have been more successful or like done <laughs> yeah. some more, but you know, who knows? Yeah. And, uh, uh, I don't know. I've never really thought beyond being able to pay pay the bills and and playing with people that I enjoy being around and enjoy playing music with. And you know, if the shows are kick ass, then I'm there. You know? Yeah. Um, I'm just curious because it is, and you put it best. It's a different part of the brain. It is a it's different the part other of the half. Brain. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially nowadays. I mean the. I feel like at some point the music industry as it was just sort of like fell apart into this wasteland of like social media with social social media kind of drives music now unfortunately I think in my opinion that's not the best place to be in and uh, streaming services and this kind of thing and algorithms and it's a completely different animal where back when it used to be sort of market driven or driven by people's taste and there yeah. were a lot of underground markets and underground scenes happening yeah um uh it's it's way different right now and i feel like it's not the music industry right now is very chaotic there's sure. like i mean it used to be sort of like record labels that more or less called the shots and you know patronized the artist and, yeah. and grew them and built them and you know well, it's being forced to change at the pace of technology, which is exponential in itself. So it's hard to keep up. There is no normalcy. There is no sense of normalcy. And I will point out, too, exactly. that technology, because of what it enables people to do, I'll put it to you like this, man. Without it was a vetting process in itself. In other words, you could want to play, kind of. But you didn't feel like going to raise money to, to get some studio time or something. Well, now you could kind of want to play and still record and yeah. publish it and put it out there by just clicking a few buttons and it doesn't cost half as much. So there's no vetting process for people like that. Yeah. So now there's this oversaturation of just published music in general. Whereas maybe 20, 30 years ago, half those losers wouldn't have done that shit because it took too much gumption to do it you see what i'm saying totally. so so you have you have people like you that are now forced to contend with people that maybe should have spent a few more years practicing and, and honing their craft before they put something out right but their drop is the same day as yours <laughs> on yep. our platforms you know what i mean um yeah i think you said it best when you talk about like oversaturation um 
how on, on the one hand, like all this digital media, the good thing about it is it enables people to produce the music the way they want to from home. You know, you can make a studio quality album from home. That's cool. The, the bad thing is that we're like completely oversaturated with, with like shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and you have to rifle through all this nonsense, like noise. You really do. To find something good yeah. as a listener, you know. And uh, it's even, as a musician, even harder to cut through that noise and, and find, your, find your mark, find your audience. Yeah. Because everybody's so, like, gaga with, like, TikTok videos and, and just nonsense. Yeah. And, and another thing I've noticed is... Oh, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the only other thing I've noticed is, like, uh, somebody, somebody sent me, like, something that's trending on TikTok is, like, bad cooking videos. Uh-huh. Where people will cook something terrible mm-hmm. on purpose. And because the only goal here is to get likes and upvotes and retweets and shares yeah. and views. Like, that's the currency of right. social media. Yes. And so what that means is that um, somebody cooking complete garbage with, with no thought into it for shock value is getting put on the same level of, of value as somebody, who, who a really great chef who's worked for years, cooking something really, really amazing. So in the market of TikTok and social media, these two things are are held in equal esteem, if yes. not if not the bad thing being more overvalued. Yes, that's funny. And it's the same with music now. But I mean, it's a shame. It's funny. It's funny because it's ridiculous, but it is a shame. Yeah, I was gonna say that it's kind of ironic that as a musician that puts out a, a finished piece of work, you're up against an algorithm. You're hoping to trigger something in your favor and it's funny because these are the same or at least the sources are the same algorithms that curate everything that people see yep and if i clicked on one country music video while i was on facebook once even if it was by accident they're going to show me more country artists Mm -hmm. you know maybe in that of that same caliber in that same vein or maybe in that same town because that was a show that occurred in denver you know what i'm saying but we're we're all we're separated by this invisible membrane and we're we're all fighting to get to each other just to form a connection do you know what i mean yeah how ironic is that yeah uh, <laughs> totally right about that as as if as somebody who's producing music in this day and age it's increasingly the concern when you release a single or an album is whether you're checking the boxes of the algorithm yeah and I hate that. Yeah, like, you gotta I don't play. You gotta to, play by their rules. For sure. Like, fuck that shit. Yeah. Like, I want to. I want to make real music, and I want to listen to real music. Yeah. I don't want. But unfortunately, if you're if you upload something to a streaming service, and the algorithm is gonna push it out to the front if it if it ch- checks the algorithm's criteria. Yeah. And if it doesn't, it's gonna get moved to the back, regardless of how good it is. Yeah, you won't know. Um, and I think we're we're kind of entering into that era of the music business. We're kind of in the beginning of it, I feel like. And I, I you know, it might get worse. But yeah. also, I think it, it might have the inverse effect of making enough people sick of that yeah. that they turn it all off and like start going to shows again, start going to local shows, start trying to find underground bands. Um, Absolutely. I'm, I'm hoping, you know, I think it will. Like There has to be like a... a I know it sounds corny, but like a grassroots upheaval, basically. I think, yeah. You know, um, 
for sure. So where people tell everybody where they can find your real ass music at today. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. we just released the Garguts EP. Um, you know, it's on all the streaming services. Um, or you could hit us up and, you know, we'll send you a CD or, or a download. Um, drabnola.com. You can check out what we've got coming up, the shows that we've got coming up. Um, yeah, the next Garguts show, the next Drab show is this weekend in Ponchatoula at The Hitch. Okay. With a band called Them Guys, good friends of ours. The next Garguts show is October 29th at The Goat. All right. So I'd say come out to a show, have a beer, you know. What can you lose, right? <laughs> what can you lose? You know, well, you lose some hearing. But, yeah, there you go. You know. <laughs> That's cool, man. Well, thank you for your time. I Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Check it out. We all pretty much start off like jam bands. We get together, we push our souls out through the speakers. We look around the stage and read off of one another. And, you know, after so much time, we know where the next person is going. Aside from those connections, we build connections with the fans. And that means the world to us. That's why listeners like yourself are so important to us. We'd love to have you back, so hit the button and follow the show. You can also support this show by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash New Orleans Music. That's buymeacoffee.com slash New Orleans Music. And remember, you can find music videos, albums, articles, and interviews with bands like my own, Pocket Chocolate, on neworleansmusicians.com. Thanks for listening. 